moon. That might explain things, you see. The moon affects the brain. I think we'd be safer inside, out of the night air. Do you understand all those clicks and wheezes? Perfectly clear to me. It's another gift from the gods. Hello and welcome to another episode of the IMMP, the Intermillennium Media Project, for your dose of nostalgia, media criticism, and misuse of parental authority. My name is Matthew Porter. And I'm Ian. And it's, it's kind of a sad, a sad time on the Intermillennium Media Project. It is. For the last several years, every June has been Harryhausen Month to celebrate Ray Harryhausen's birthday, and we've come to the end of the filmography. That kind of astounds me. I don't know that we have necessarily done every single movie that he's worked on, but certainly every one that I'm aware of. At least one of those movies was done outside of Harryhausen Month, because when I saw it as a kid, I didn't really know that it was a Harryhausen movie, and that was First Men in the Moon. That was a wild movie. But we've done his sea monster movies and his space monster movies and his flying saucer movies, all of his Sinbad movies, and this month we did Jason and the Argonauts. And a big part of the IMMP is being able to discuss how media impacted you and how, in turn, it impacted me, both my media, your media, and the you the media impacted, in that sense. and. The fact that Harryhausen had an entire month and had so many interesting and fascinating movies for us to build that around says so much about the impact he had on media and on you in a wonderful way. I know I was an odd kid for knowing who Harryhausen was in like middle school, but I thought that was fun. I enjoyed that a lot, and this has been excellent getting to explore again and with renewed depth. And as a kid, you were always so into making things and building things and building cardboard robots, but the reason for building them was then to tell a story with them. I wanted you to know that all these cool movies we get to see on TV, there's a, there are people who made those, and it started out with a cool idea, and they actually turned it into this movie that we can see. I've appreciated that, and the fact that you supported that in me this entire time, and I thank you, Dad. And one of the things about this movie, this final Harryhausen movie, is that when it came along, there was a difference between how I regarded this movie and how I had thought about the previous Harryhausen movies. This came out in 1981. Mm -hmm. I was in high school. Previously, I had watched these Harryhausen movies, the Sinbad movies and the Space Monster movies and the Flying Saucer movie, and they were just really cool fantasy and science fiction adventures. And that's the mode in which I absorbed them, and I was into fantasy stories and D&D and all these things, and this was just, the Harryhausen movies was just more of that. It was a bigger part of that. By the time this movie came along in 1981, I was really into movies. <laughs> so I really focused on this as a movie and how it was put together and structured and how these cool effects that Harryhausen created served the story and worked with all of the other components of movie making. 
didn't change my enjoyment of it. It just gave me a different way to think about it. I was looking at it from a slightly more mature point of view. And when and this is actually the first Harryhausen movie you showed me that I knew was made by a guy, Ray Harryhausen, or at least all these cool special effects were. And I I remember the fact that this was one of those things where back when we had a TiVo for the first time, I remember you getting very excited setting up a search for this and it showing up on AMC one night and wanting to show it to me and watching this movie and going, oh, wow, what? That TiVo wishlist capability was terrific. I missed not having that in the Xfinity DVR we have now because it was kind of like pre-ordering books. You set up a, a wish list. And then you kind of forget about it until this present from past you comes along and there's this thing on the, the DVR ready to watch. I just wish we didn't continually uh, drive TiVos to insanity. They would eventually just all kind of collapse their algorithm and do nothing but suggest HGTV. <laughs> well, a, a, the a, when the AI takes over the world, I hope it doesn't hold those against us. Well, when it puts us in the human zoo, then it'll, at least it will be nicely appointed. Because it'll have to analyze all those HGTV programs. Oh, yeah. Well, I don't know if we've actually mentioned the title of this movie yet. You've seen I it yeah. in the episode title. We're talking about Clash of the Titans from 1981. Ah. Once again, I always think of it as a Harryhausen movie. I'm sure others think of it as a Harryhausen movie. It was actually directed by Desmond Davis. And it's really... No, nothing against Mr. Davis, but it's a Harryhausen movie. Because he, he produced it along with his frequent production partner, Charles H. Shear. And it's so much about the visual and, and special effects that Harryhausen supervised that yeah, I have to think of it as his movie. I'm, I'm intriguing just in terms of playing the, uh, the connections of Hollywood that it was written by uh, Alan Beverly Cross, who was... The second husband of actress Maggie Smith. Is that right? Yes. I had no idea. Absolutely. Well, that's cool. Kind of cool. Yeah. <laughs> well, this again is, it's another Greek mythology movie. We watched Jason and the Argonauts previously, and that was from decades earlier. Mm-hmm. And Harryhausen came back to this, now telling the story of Perseus. Which is really a great story. A great story for the screen, but a very different story depending on when you end it. Oh, absolutely. I was, I've, maybe it was Hemingway who talked about the fact that you know, whether or not you have a happy ending depends on when you end the story. Oh, yeah. <laughs> the story of Perseus is exactly one of those. But we've got Perseus, played by Harry Hamlin, who I gather for many years didn't really want to remember that he had, had done this, because shortly after this movie came out... I think it was after this movie came out. He became a TV star in L.A. Law and was a star in that for many years. But I don't, to me, he's always Perseus. Oh, that's a fun idea. I just want to put a pin in that for later. <laughs> and also Burgess Meredith in what must have been one of his last roles, playing the, the dramatist who becomes the mentor to Perseus. Actually, he, he had a bunch of other credits for a while after, but this is one of his most well-remembered. Terrific character actor. I always love seeing Burgess Meredith in, in just about anything. Oh, yeah. He does an excellent job in yeah. this. And it wasn't long before this that he had such a great role in Rocky. Mm-hmm. 
He's good at playing that kind of mentor figure character. Yeah, certainly at this point in his career, he had that that frailty of age and yet this confidence of experience and the forceful personality when he needed it. That that worked together so well. But th- this is a story of a Greek hero, so it doesn't just end with, with our mortals down on the ground. We also have Maggie Sl- Smith as Thetis. We have Claire Bloom as Hera. Ursula Andress as Aphrodite and Laurence Olivier as Zeus, who gets the who gets the first like I think title when they're showing the actors. It's just Laurence Olivier as Zeus, and my mind says more movies need to just put that in their opening <laughs> crawl, even if he doesn't and Zeus doesn't ever show up or play this. Just the concept of out there somewhere in this film, Laurence <laughs> Olivier is walking around as Zeus is just. Gonna add something to most movies. I like that. John Wick Chapter 5 with Laurence Olivier as Zeus. Zeus. <laughs> that would be great. Oh, yeah. <laughs> the Lego movie with Laurence Olivier as Zeus. <laughs> hey. And it's interesting, of course, to compare this with Jason and the Argonauts because so much of it is it's based upon that same vision of mythological Greece and the Olympian gods, and yet the filmmaking had advanced so much. I'm glad that they didn't overdo what was possible. Now, granted, this was still just 1981. This was pre-CGI. All of these were practical and visual effects, um, yeah, practical and lighting and, and that kind of thing. No, No computer graphics. These are still back in the days when John Carpenter was using cardboard models and glow-in-the-dark tape because it was cheaper than computer wireframes. But they did a few things that were subtly different and cool, like the the radiant laser beam light halo behind Zeus when Zeus was on his throne. I loved that look, and it in some ways it's dated, but it was so effective because it goes with the physical surroundings of Olympus as they're portrayed in the movie. It is a very great feeling where it's, this feels extremely 80s. This feels like the 80s caught something ancient and held it in its decade and era. But it's definitely 80s. And I will note that this is a movie that it came out, you know, in 81 there. That is after the big changes to cinema that happened with Star Wars. Yes. And there is a lot I think that this is in res- is responding to Star Wars. This is the sword and sandal genre we have seen plenty of Harryhausen things already tackle, but in a post Star Wars media landscape, it had to change some of those things to fit it. I think you're right in that Star Wars showed how you can go back to these mythological frameworks of stories and tell them with modern movie making techniques and that's what we see here it's a, it's a it's a very it's a movie of its time but it, yeah it's going back to in this case the specific story not just the framework to to te- retell that so yeah you're right i don't know that we get this movie or we get this movie in exactly this way were it not for star wars but that's true of so many movies following 1977 there's definitely a part later though that we wouldn't get at all without <laughs> and i'm going to mention him later all right well, in terms of story, it, it has something in common with the Jason story because it starts off with a prince in exile 
Although, in this case, it's not because he was sent off to safety as someone else was taking over his kingdom. It starts out with the, the, the king casting the, his daughter and grandson into the sea. That is always one of the most wild parts of this myth. Or it's, it's the, put him in a box, throw the box in the ocean. Well, if something happens to them while they're in that box, it's not on me. <laughs> it's like, how in the world did you just Schrodinger's assassinate someone? Come on, little Perseus, into the fun box. Exactly. And yeah. And the, the reason is apparently that there was a prophecy that this child would be his, the king's downfall, and yet the, the proclamation that's read out as this box is cast into the sea talks about like acts of dishonor and such, and it's like, okay, we're starting with an honor killing? That does not yeah, no. make me feel happy about this story. Mm. It's certainly not about, about that king. But that king, as is often the case, he does get what's coming to him. Unfortunately, because the king is the kingdom and the people are part of the kingdom, it's not just the king who suffers. Yeah, it's really, really upsetting when it's like, well, we're mad at him for that. Destroy the town. So much of that town is not him, but I... Yeah, you and, know. And it spends way too long showing everyone else getting hurt and running away, I feel, but... They have to make use of those special effects, and they are big dramatic things to see on screen. Oh, yeah. But it also it establishes stakes, because what happens to this city is very important later on, because we have the, the threat and actuality of this happening elsewhere. Uh, and what happened, of course, is the Kraken. Yes. The last of the Titans, who is apparently under the control of Poseidon. And, of course, Poseidon is under the command of Zeus, so Zeus says... Uh, you know that kid in the box? That's my kid, as so many were. Yeah. And I can't abide this happening, so release the Kraken, will you? And they they do an odd job of pointing out how many, like, there's this interesting little scene of, like, it, back in Olympus, and it's, oh, it must be a Tuesday, another one of Zeus's kids he had <laughs> running around from you, Hera, is getting in trouble. Yeah. It's like... There's this weirdly annoyed, but also they've gone through this enough times kind of attitude in all of Olympus. And Hera is not happy about all of this philandering on Zeus's part, but she expects it at this point. Not healthy. <laughs> no, not a healthy relationship. But not healthy. there's not a lot of healthy personalities in Olympus. No. They're, they are not. You don't get great stories by making your gods all uh, completely level-headed and well-adjusted. Yeah, there's something, there's something that always weirdly 90s or early aughts sitcom-y to me about a lot of depictions of the Greek gods. Uh, but this is one of those fine examples, and I do like their, their, uh, their evolution from the, the water pool that we had in Jason and the Argonauts. Where we've gone to like miniatures of areas that can move around like on a magic table and an infinite cubbies set for their people figurines. Yes, it was like he's got a quite a collection of figurines. My you goodness, know. I want to see Dungeons and Dragons Night on Olympus. I want to check the bottom of all those for the Good Smile logo. <laughs> oh, oh. <laughs> 
Perseus with swappable faceplates. <laughs> what? Oh, we're not using Nendoroids today? I thought that was uh, Tuesday. Oh, I like that too much. <laughs> and yeah, instead of just the battle mat, they have this like amphitheater arena in which they often stage the... If, if there's someone who has the attention of the gods, their figurine gets put on the, in the middle of that arena. And there's some fun things there about putting people back up on the shelf and pulling people down and putting them there so someone else has to come deal with the fact yes. that they're in play. <laughs> but, uh, so yeah, the king who, who sent Perseus and his mother off to their, their doom, he and his kingdom are taken out by the Kraken. But Perseus and his mom are okay, because in addition to telling Poseidon to release the Kraken, Zeus tells him to make sure that the castaways get to some safe shore. So they get to the island, the peaceful, remote island of Sephiroth, and... Preferably really an island where we can have a growing up and becoming a, a young potential fighter yeah. montage. <laughs> yeah, we get the growing up montage, and we see the little kid turn into uh, Harry Hamlin. With lots of horse riding and fishing expertise. And not just horse riding, horse acrobatics. He's there, like, doing surf balancing on top of his horse. I appreciate that, because his ability with a horse, that, that, is, that pays off later. It does. They make that investment. It does pay off later, but when I say surf, I do say, this version of Perfe Perseus has a little bit surfer dude in him. <laughs> You're right. Just in terms of his, like, whoa... At some of the more fantastical things and his, like, wide-eyed kind of expression. <laughs> this is slightly, you know, surfer dude in Greek times. Yeah, just as Luke Skywalker seemed to be an extremely Californian space farmer, mm -hmm. uh, Perseus here seems to be a very Californian uh, Greek demigod. Oh, yeah. Kraken's attacking the boardwalk, dude. <laughs> But meanwhile, Zeus is taking good care of his kid, but not necessarily those of the other gods. For example, uh, uh, Thetis has a son, Calibos, who Zeus is kind of mad at for killing all the flying horses, all, all the flying horses except one. So he has cursed Calibos to be this ugly, twisted satyr type creature he literally picks him up and re-sculpts him i love that bit there's something that's done here i don't remember seeing in a lot of harryhausen movies and that is not just the stop motion animation but also doing some drawn or cell animation and doing that with shadows yes we see zeus put down in this model amphitheater a figure of a man that's calabas and then we focus on the shadow and we see the shadow twist and contort into this monster. And then we pull out against and we can see that the figure is now of the monster. It is excellently it's done. Very cool. But Thetis, of course, is not very happy about this. So she wants a little back. She wants to, to have a little revenge. And she can't actually do anything super dangerous or, or smite Perseus, because that would get Zeus too mad, but she can move him around on the board, so to speak. Mm -hmm. So she just teleports him to Joppa. And that's where Perseus meets Burgess Meredith, because he ends up in the, this guy's amphitheater, where he puts on plays with all kind of, of all the heroic stories. I do love the fact that one of the first things is, oh, you're destined to be a hero. I got a costume for that. Come in the back. <laughs> and that's interesting, because it, it there's something to be said for... For his understanding, that part of being a hero is presentation. 
mm-hmm. you look like a hero and act like a hero and carry the stuff a hero would carry, you're going to be a hero in the minds of 99% of the people that you encounter. Exactly. And as Perseus is figuring this out, Zeus has everybody send him some equipment and gifts to make that happen. Yeah, I almost get the impression that that Zeus isn't allowed to just undo what Thetis did, that she's kind of allowed to do that within the rules, so he can do something else to help protect him. So he orders some of the other goddesses to create uh, a shield and a sword and a helm for Perseus. In a lot of these things, they're never allowed to remove something from play. They're only allowed to add, and that's important. And I appreciate that because it's, like you know, that. everyone, everything is, if things get added in response and directly solving the problem from on high can't happen, you can only funnel and channel and try to set up encounters. I like this idea that the, the world of, of mankind, as manipulated by the gods, is a tr- giant improv experiment. Yes. And it's all yes and. It's you know, I can't yes just and. say, you know, no, you didn't send him to Joppa, okay? You sent him to Joppa, and he got these magical uh, gifts from the, the goddesses when he arrived there. Mm-hmm. I, I, I like that, because it suggests not a limitation on the gods, but the gods have a sense of story and a sense of progress, and they don't just want to spend all their li- lives doing and undoing each other's actions. They want to build upon what they see. Exactly. It's like the momentum of the world is the most maintained thing, and that there can only be things added, but you can never pull back that momentum. That's a powerful point. And one thing that I think both uh, of these Harryhausen movies, uh, Jason and the Argonauts and Clash of the Titans, they do have that idea of as long as the gods are worshipped and remembered then they live and if they if if that fades so do they and you you don't get that by going backwards you get that by building more things in the world of humans Mm -hmm. so this leads perseus to go check out these cool weapons the helm makes him invisible uh for example and he goes out to check out the city of Joppa nearby. Yeah, he's, and, he's got his invisible helm, his all-slicing sword, and his, pres- and his like, always pristine shield. And, uh, and he gets a message from Zeus to make sure you take care of these things. Done in the most wild, like, projected on the inside of his uh, shield. Your mission, if you choose to accept it. <laughs> And Perseus, you know, given the fact that he's been teleported away from home, but I guess it was, it was time for him to find adventures to go on. He's kind of happy, but the city of Joppa is not very happy. No, Joppa's in trouble. It is under a curse because there is the young princess Andromeda, and whoever marries Andromeda will inherit the kingdom. But no one's allowed to marry Andromeda unless they can answer a riddle. And if you try and fail, you don't just get to go home, let alone try again. You get, like, burned. Yeah. And yet, there are plenty of people who are willing to, uh, to try this, it seems. And it turns out that these riddles are all coming from Calabos. They change every day. Because Calabos keeps kidnapping the spirit 
of Andromeda each night. That's the weird. That's one of those weird moments, but really cool moments in terms of like Harry has in stop motion because using his invisible helmet and wanting to get a like a hint for the next day. Percy's just sneaks into the palace with his invisibility and watches as Andromeda's spirit gets up out of bed, out of her body, goes over to the giant uh, bird cage that is materialized on her balcony. That was carried there by a giant vulture. Yeah. Which is calmly waiting for her to get inside. And once she is, it carries it off. This is the the weirdest Uber I've ever seen called. (laughs) One star. (laughs) Would would not ride again. There's just just little water bottles available in the bottom (laughs) of the bird cage. But it is... It is a chilling scene. It's one of those scenes uh, that with a, a giant Harryhausen stop motion monster, this just monstrously sized vulture, but there's no fighting involved. Yeah. It's just this slow, quiet, creepy scene. I love it. It's very chilling. Very creepy. So much of what Harryhausen does, it is about motion and conflict and, and, and not here. It's subtle and it's creepy. I love it. This is a a scene where Harryhausen gets to act through his stuff, and it's amazing. Yes, I, I I get that impression from the best scenes that he creates, is that he is thinking like an actor. How do I express something about character through this? We see that later with Calabas. We see it with some other things. In terms of story, this is where it becomes extremely episodic. And it's, you know, we have this problem, so we need this. And to get this, we need that. And then this intervenes, because now he wants to follow Andromeda to find out where she's going. But how does he follow something that flies? Well, there is the last of the flying horses. The one that Calibus hasn't gotten gotten around to killing, that's Pegasus. So what if we go get Pegasus? And of course, Burgess Meredith knows where they'll be able to find Pegasus. And this is where the fact that we have already seen that Perseus is such a great horseman comes into play, because he's able to to tame and ride Pegasus. Mm-hmm. Which is an impressive feat. But now he has the ability of flight, so he can follow the vulture. And we see what's happening when Andromeda is taken over to Calabas's swamp, the swamp where he lives with all of his creepy minions. Yeah. And... He is still in, Calabas is still in love with her. They were supposed to get married before Calabas was cursed. And, and the reason why he has set up this riddle rule is so that, well, if I can't marry you, then nobody else can marry you. And I can't just prohibit that, so I'm going to make sure that people have to solve this riddle. And he hypnotizes her into remembering a new riddle each time. And she wants nothing to do with him, but she has no power or control over this. Mm-hmm. This means that Perseus is there hearing what the riddle will be, seeing all this happen. And oh, I do have a sword that can cut through anything. <laughs> and Calabas catches him. Yes. After Andromeda is sent back to her house. And they fight. And uh, and Perseus I wins, I guess. Yeah, he, he at least disarms his opponent. <laughs> yes, he does. By slicing off Calabas's hand. <laughs> Oh, yeah. So he he has that proof and he knows what the riddle is. So the next day he's able to answer the riddle and win the hand of Andromeda and everybody's happy. He does so also in the most, of course, like the most extra way possible. Arriving late, stepping in through the center. 
holding off on answering answering the riddle till he can literally throw down the hand of Calabos and say, you mean that thing? The ring on his <laughs> finger? Is that your answer? He has definitely gotten some pointers from Burgess Meredith about theatricality. Oh, absolutely. And, and he is using them. <laughs> so, happy ending? No. Perseus and Andromeda get married? And, no? No. Behind the scenes, we learn that Thetis, the goddess to whom this city is dedicated, is kind of fickle in that we see Calabas go to the temple of Thetis mm-hmm. and beg her to punish Perseus and, and the this whole city of Joppa for the grave injustice they've done. They've, by injuring me, cutting off my hand, they've insulted you. I want you to release the kraken upon Joppa. So, I mean... When your only tool is a kraken, every problem looks like a blasphemous coastal city. <laughs> I think I broke Ian. <laughs> <laughs> oh my goodness, yes. But Thetis doesn't go for that. No. She just doesn't want to do anything hasty. But then at the wedding reception, Cassiopeia says something Thetis doesn't like in comparing her daughter's beauty to that of the goddess. Thetis. So that, that does gets her, her yeah. mad enough. And she says that you're going to have to, to to make up for this, you're going to have to sacrifice your virgin daughter Andromeda in what was it, 30 days time. Mm-hmm. Chain her to the chain her to the rock of sacrifice. I like, apparently ver- we've done that before. Yeah. The very fact that they have one of these is troubling. I'm hope- yeah. gathering it hasn't been used that Recently, but still. And then the Kraken will come and take her, as opposed to destroying your city. If you don't do this, you know what the Kraken's capable of. Uh, is it like a sports stadium? Is Sacrifice the recent owner of The Rock outside of town? And they've just changed <laughs> the name and branding because a new company took over. It's naming rights for the... <laughs> I don't know. The fact that it has, like, permanently installed manacles makes me wonder what kind of sporting event this was. Yeah. But, <laughs> but now, Perseus, even though they're, he and Andromeda are married, they can't be together, and she's going to die in 30 days unless he finds some way to kill a kraken. And... So they got to find out that knowledge, and for that they go to the three witches who share one crystal eye mm-hmm. and debate with them for a while and finally get the information. Yeah. And Perseus has a little team of soldiers of the city he's now going to be future king of <laughs> with him. And it's like, we need to go someplace where they'll know things. Well, these three witches will know things, but they're dangerous. Right, because they tend to eat people who are sent as delegates to talk to them. but. The important thing, though, is how they know to go to the witches. How is that? Because Perseus gets the final gift from Zeus. Oh, right, because he lost the helmet in the swamp. Yes. So the goddess who provided the helmet is instructed to send something else. It's Athena. Mm Mm-hmm. And Zeus wants her to send her owl. And she does not want to part with her owl. I don't blame her. You can't just yeah, give away your owls. Don't just give away your owls, but you know what you can do? <laughs> you can talk to Hephaestus. And he will happily make you a limited edition collectible version of your owl. <laughs> and that would be Bubo. 
this wonderful animatronic goofy owl. I think this is what you were talking about when you said we wouldn't have gotten this but for Star Wars. Oh my goodness. Yeah, he's the droid. Boobo too deep too here. <laughs> he is a little tiny metallic friend who speaks in beeps and whistles. <laughs> is probably the most knowledgeable one in the room and gets plenty of cutaways for small robotic hijinks. <laughs> and I love him. Bubo is great. Bubo is amazing. If someone out there in the IMMP listener base is good with programming or robotics, I will pay you to build me a Raspberry Pi powered Bubo <laughs> that can just act as a desktop like status indicator. I just I just need him to go Beep, beep, when I've got like a Discord message or something, <laughs> but it would be amazing. That would be great. <laughs> he's so much fun because he's got the little extendable neck, his little flapping wings, his little like iris shutter eyes going on. <laughs> it's, it's just excellent. But he's the one who kind of flies over and beeps and whistles and Percy is like, oh, they'd know. And everyone else is like, you understand it? Like, Yeah. <laughs> okay then but now it's time to go see the witches because the little metallic owl that fell from the sky told us and the visit to the witches is creepy but it goes on a little too long yeah One of those things that seems to be mostly filler it's a creepy scene there are the three witches that share one eye and there's a lot of great build-up to it because they know they're they're so dangerous and it's a little bit anticlimactic once they actually encounter these witches mm -hmm. and oh by the way andromeda has insisted on coming along for the ride she doesn't go up to see the witches because they've got to like climb a, a mountain to do that but she does ride with them although soon after the visit to the witches perseus ditches her because where they're going is is uh is too dangerous because they have to go to the island of the dead because there is one thing that could kill the kraken and that would be Medusa. So it's the classic fight against a Medusa. Oh, petrification versus tenacity. And even before they get there, to get to the Island of the Dead, I have to mention another cool little Harryhausen touch. That is, they have to cross the River of Death. Yes. And they have to take the Charon's ferry. Oh. And the ferryman, it's just this skeleton in a cloak but the way it's edited and the few little glimpses and movements we get he's a scary character more scary than some of the giant monsters we get to see in full yeah the giant monsters they feel like they're things that are that could be overcome Sharon just doesn't he's just like here you've got the coin nothing will happen if you don't have the coin hand me the coin these things that are okay. supernatural and silently inexplicable are so fun. They give, give me such a thrill. Oh, absolutely. But then we get into the action scene of... It's, and it's a, it's a tactical action scene of maneuvering around the temple where, where Medusa is, first fighting some the uh, um I guess it's supposed to be Cerberus? I guess? To... Uh, to get into the uh, the temple. And of course, it's the shiny shield that protects Perseus and lets him attack uh, mm -hmm. 
uh, to attack Medusa at the right time. But and Medusa is portrayed really well. This creepy half woman, half snake with the with the snake hair, less human appearing than than Medusa is sometimes portrayed. She's definitely monstrous. This leans in on the snake-like nature. Yes. Where she's human in the sense that she has this this poise and this bearing and this, like, awareness aspect. But the way she turns corners and lashes forward to try to paralyze and petrify people has this very, like, telekinetic snake bite almost feel. Yes, very snake-like reflexes. And in addition to her her petrifying gaze, she also has a a, uh, a bow and a quiver of arrows with which she is extremely adept. She's really, really good shot. <laughs> but that's again that I don't know that I'd want to shorten that, but it does seem like they they pad that scene out a bit. But when I pay enough attention to it, I do see that it's well constructed tactically. Every move people are making, everything people are doing to position themselves, and in the end, it's just the Medusa and. Perseus, they they really are playing this chess game within the space of this temple, and he gets into a position where he can safely attack her and does so. Mm-hmm. Watch around a corner with his shield and slice her down. Now, he loses the shield to her caustic blood, but he gains her head, which he's able to wrap up in his acid-immune cloak and create a pouch. But he is carrying around a bleeding head in a pouch. Right. And they do have another encounter with Calabas, who uh, sneaks into their camp and stabs the bag of Medusa heads so that its blood drips on the ground and creates giant scorpions. Yeah. Which are fun to watch because we get another battle against giant clacky monsters. I do love the, the watching the, the scorpions from this you know, dripping thing grow in size where you, you hit see them hit and turn into scorpions you're like oh that's not good oh wait they're scaling up while the place is not oh that's really not good those are big a nifty simple effect but it's powerful oh like yeah that. and this is a battle that goes on for a while it claims the remaining uh soldiers who have been helping perseus mm-hmm. and perseus is practically wiped out by this battle. He has no chance of getting back to Joppa in time to save Andromeda. And then it occurs to him, Bubo can come to the rescue once again. Yes. He sends Bubo out to find Pegasus. And he guessed correctly that Calabas has not killed Pegasus, because uh, he lost Pegasus before, because Cal- we saw Calabas capture Stealing Pegasus. Away, yeah. But unlike the other flying horses, Calabas just put this Pegasus in a cage. And Bubo's able to release him. He is. And set fire to uh, to Calabas' house on the way out. Yeah, Bubo. <laughs> and, Tiny little arsonist. Yep. Calabas, not crazy about that. The vulture, not crazy about that. Actually, Calabas, was he killed in the, the fight against Perseus? He's he must killed have been. in the fight yeah. against Perseus. The Calabas, uh, with, his, uh, with a fork hand to replace the one that got cut off as a dramatic fight. Which I, I, I feel like this must be the start of the like lizard man with a fork hand trope. Because I've a, seen that in multiple other things. That's a trope? I, don't I have seen character design like that in other places. And I'm like, is that from here? I Sounds likely. That. Yeah. And of course, with Pegasus, Perseus is able to get back to Joppa. 
just in time, but not so soon that we don't get lots of cool scenes with the, well, there's the big ceremonial march down to the Rock of Sacrifice, and they chain up Andromeda, and once again we get to see Poseidon unleash the Kraken. Yeah, everyone, Kraken is just multi-purpose in use, like everyone's calling in the Kraken. (laughs) And the Kraken, I think the Kraken reminds me a whole lot of the, was it five million miles to Earth? Yes. The the space monster that we get to see grow and uh, cause havoc in Italy. Yeah, it is extremely like that. Because this this is a kraken that is definitely aquatic, but it is also remarkably gorilla-like. Yeah, it's got this long aquatic tail, and yet, yeah, it's very simian. It's got four arms, and the head and the facial structure remind me of that space monster from the, yeah. the earlier black and white movie. Kind of an octomer ape. And you see that in Harryhausen's movies a fair amount, where... Some, if not the actual model, sometimes it is the actual model he used in a previous movie. Other times it's just the design language that was developed for a previous movie. And I think that is great. I don't see that as being repetitive. I see that as the way a director would get a great performance collaborating with an actor on one movie and naturally decide to work with that same actor again in a later movie. I get that same impression with Ray Harryhausen and certain models, certain designs, be it the the skeletons that we see in a few in Sinbad movies and Jason and the Argonauts, or the way that this creature harkens back to the space monster from Venus. Yeah, but yeah, there's there's something about the the design language of that where it's like we know what works, and it makes for being the last Harryhausen film. There is something nicely culminating. Yeah, cumulative about the Kraken. Yes, it brings together a lot of things that we've gotten to see over the years in yeah. this movie and in his across his filmography. Exactly. It's it's a worthy final monster, and seeing him crumble as the hero turns him into stone, that's a cool shot. That is a wonderful shot. So as sad as it is not to have more Ray Harryhausen movies after this one, this is a wonderful one to go out on. It's just cheesy enough, it's just inspiring enough, it's got a lot of cool visuals. It still uses the fact that things that are magical and supernatural don't move quite the way that natural things do, and I think that is a positive. Oh, yeah. Use different frame rates. It can really throw things <laughs> into interesting perspective. But, yeah, this is a this is an excellent way to end, I think. It's and got a lot of heart and a lot of fun adventure. And I have no problem with this being one of the easiest to find Harryhausen movies. And we've kind of come full circle because, as you pointed out, uh, this was the first Harryhausen movie I showed you many years ago. Oh, yeah. And some of the others I really had to hunt for to find copies to show you. But I did want to give you that context. But it's fun to follow up and, and end on this one, coming back to it. And I don't know how to approach our usual final questions with this. Yeah. Well, there's screen or no screen. I've got to say screen, personally. I'm going to say screen as well. I'm going to admit, being a movie from when it is, this is one where other people of my generation, this might not grab you. You might find that you want to do something else while you watch it, because some of those slow scenes get slow. Yeah. 
And I'll admit that. That's just kind of filmmaking at the time. But it's excellent. And you're you're missing out if you don't see some of the f- the best bits, at least. Yeah, you can follow along from the dialogue if you're doing other things and then pay attention during the big scenes. I think it's worth paying attention to all the way through at least once, but I can understand that its pace is just not what would grab an audience today. Some of the, some of the, the scenes go on too long. There is uh, some sense of padding. Mm-hmm. So, you know, it, could it be shorter? Yeah. Could it be tighter? Yeah, but it wasn't unusual for uh, late 70s, early 80s movies to be paced this way. But then... Our second question, as usual, is revive, reboot, or rest in peace? Well, let's acknowledge the fact that this is a take on a mythological story. And I don't think, I think anything we say, it's the truth that these sort of stories will be told again. Right. I so, think that, you know, that, that root story is always going to be out there. I once again will pitch anyone who enjoys that sort of story, go find Stephen Fry's books of mythos, heroes, and Troy. They are excellent. They are a fun f- version of these. It kind of proves my point in terms of the fact that they'll keep on being told. And a reboot of this movie would just be another retelling, another adaptation of the story of Perseus. And I'm confident we're going to get more of those. So uh, uh, a reboot is a given. Oh, I mean, you could do something interesting with the reboot. Maybe make it really, really epic with real 3D cinema and. Uh, advertise the life of it. Yeah, they made another one. Yeah, you're talking... I think you're talking... I'm talking the 2010. Yeah, I guess that is reboot. It's a remake. It's a remake. It is. It's. It's. I think it is explicitly a remake of this movie. Yeah, it is. Given the title and everything, as opposed to... Hey, it's a... It's a uh, I'm gonna... They, they remade this. They made a sequel to the remake. They also... It's just not the same thing, though. No. No. We've got to acknowledge it. It's not a bad movie, and maybe we'll talk about it at some point as a bonus. Yeah, that might be a fine thing for the Patreon. It doesn't. It doesn't have the the energy. It's another over CGI'd epic. It doesn't have the weight. Is it of really Clash Harry of the Titans Housen without Bubo? And I've got to wonder. They do say Clash of the Titans, but they also talk about the fact that uh, the Kraken is the last of the Titans, and there are another no other titans for it to fight and we don't actually see any titans clashing yeah at least in voyage to the bottom of the sea eventually they went to the bottom of the sea (laughs) here we don't see any titans clashing yeah hmm unless they just did not accessorize well i don't know (laughs) oh goodness yeah he he does (laughs) does not match these surroundings of these coastal towns he's he's attacking but yeah that cgi epic is definitely a reboot of this and yeah it doesn't it doesn't Hold a candle to the Harryhausen version. And in many ways, the Harryhausen version still holds up so well in its other ways. Some of those some of those monsters, some of those scenes are so excellent. My response is a loving rest in peace. Mine too. We've talked about the 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 possibility of reviving, essentially doing sequels to the Harryhausen movies themselves, and they would have to be done by filmmakers who were huge fans of Harryhausen and wanted to revive his techniques. And I could see that happening. I really don't see that happening more than 40 years later. Someone deciding to make a sequel of Clash of the Titans in the same style. But I do kind of hope that this sort of physical stop-motion animation monster work is is preserved by some filmmakers out there. 
So oh. I say rest in peace for this. I will make one fun side note. Yeah. Because you mentioned before how uh, Harry Hamlin kind of went on to another thing and left this role behind. Yeah. Well, he did come back to it later. Because he voiced Perseus in the game God of War 2. <laughs> so he has played the, the character again. That's great. And I think that's a pattern that I totally understand. Sometimes there's a role that an actor has early in their career that they, they get known for it, but they're kind of embarrassed, especially if they went on to bigger things and they don't want to talk about that. It always warms my heart when later on in their careers, they can look back and they have enough confidence to say, yeah, that was totally cheesy, but it was fun. And I think some people enjoyed it. So that's an important thing. And I, I, I feel like that's where Hamlin has come around to with Perseus. Oh, yeah. But this was fun. This was. We'll, we'll have to think of something else to do with June. We will. On the, uh, the Intermillennium Media Project. And there's one Harryhausen movie that we haven't talked about. Oh, my. Because it's technically out of bounds. Because I never saw it until very recently. I didn't see it when I was a kid. Ooh. And that is the movie One Million B.C., or is it One Million Years B.C.? One Million Years B.C., I believe. And that is a story that is set in One Million Years B.C., when the Earth is populated by cavemen and dinosaurs and giant pet store lizards and volcanoes and Raquel Welch with eyeshadow and a fur bikini. Oh, this explains why that movie must have been popular. <laughs> so that is going to be our next Patreon bonus. We'll be discussing that that remaining Harryhausen movie, the lost Harryhausen movie, as far as my childhood was concerned. So, absolutely. We've had a wild two months, haven't we? We have. We we've have. Done, we've done submarines with stories of going to fantastic places and even inside of people. And then we've had two uh, different movies about, you know, figures and of grand mythology and of you know, impressive monsters and swords and magic and some fun stop motion kind of reminding me of something why do i have a feeling you're going to be taking over the podcast in a couple of weeks i absolutely will be <laughs> i'm going to be taking it over and i hope you can follow the instructions and build everything that comes in the canister <laughs> well that's going to be fun and oh, that will yes. be uh, in about two weeks from the, the time we release this <laughs> <laughs> well in the meantime dad where can they find you online uh, you can find me, just go to bymatthewporter.com. That's where you'll find links to what I'm doing now, a link to my YouTube page for the Draft House Diary movie reviews and other things like my trip to uh, to Roswell, New Mexico for the UFO Festival, and uh, any updates on other things I'm doing. And Ian, where can people find you? I can be found as item crafting in most places, such as Twitter, uh, YouTube, TikTok, and as item crafting live on Twitch. And for the podcast, you can just go to immproject.com. If you want more of the podcast, you'll find all of our back episodes. If you want to support the podcast, you'll find our store and you'll find our Patreon, which can get you even more audio content. And if you want to contact us, go to our contact page. You can message us from there. Also on that contact page at immproject.com, you will find our P.O. box if you want to send us honest-to-goodness real-life mail through the U.S. Postal Service. If you do send us a note or a message of any kind, just let us know if it's okay to read it on the podcast. We'd love to hear from you. So thank you very much for listening. We hope you'll join us again in a couple of weeks. In the meantime, go find something new to watch. <laughs>